Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll go to Vizcaya Museum and Gardens in Miami, which was originally the palatial estate of agricultural industrialist James Deering. And the house itself is really an adaptation of European traditions brought to this subtropical climate. So it's not a copy, it's not a pastiche, It's this really sort of unique integration of art, artifacts, and architecture across hundreds of years. We'll discuss David Levy-Uly, one of Florida's first two United States senators. He was actually a British citizen. Uh, His father then immigrated to the United States, and they acquired a huge tract of land in northeast Florida, about 50,000 acres, with the hopes of creating uh, what his father termed as a new Jerusalem. And we'll look at urban planning in 1920s Jacksonville. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Just blocks from the bustling urban setting of downtown Miami is an oasis of classical beauty in a serene and idealized natural setting. Known today as Vizcaya Museum and Gardens, the 40-room mansion surrounded by acres of meticulously landscaped gardens was originally the home of industrialist James Deering. As early as the 1890s, the Deering family started wintering in St. Augustine. James Deering's parents later moved to Coconut Grove, which would become part of Miami. Mark Osterman is guiding programs manager at Vizcaya Museum and Gardens. James Deering was what's known as an agricultural industrialist. Um, His firm created agricultural farming equipment across the United States. It became one of the largest um, manufacturing firms in the entire world. He was vice president of the firm, International Harvester. He was very interested in technology, so the construction of Vizcaya um, includes an integration of sort of the highest levels of building technology during the day but that's all camouflaged within the design of the home, which was also meant to look about 400 years old. In 1908, at the age of 49, Deering retired from the International Harvester Company and initiated his plans to create the palatial Vizcaya estate. Deering's Gilded Age display of incredible wealth in Florida would rival the San Simeon Castle built by William Randolph Hearst in California. It's really unique. It's Italian inspired mainly on the exterior of the home, but if uh, when you're on the interior, especially the central courtyard that has Spanish influence or what we'd call Mediterranean influence. Um, and the house itself is really an ad- adaptation of European traditions brought to this subtropical climate. So it's not a copy, it's not a pastiche, it's this really sort of unique um, integration of art, artifacts and architecture across hundreds of years um, to create this, this incredibly unique property. 
Construction on Vizcaya began in the fall of 1913 and Deering moved into the home on Christmas Day 1916. Deering wanted all of the latest technology available incorporated into the home, including a telephone, but he had architect F. Burl Hoffman Jr. design a structure that appeared to be about 400 years old. It would take until 1921 to complete the fantastic Vizcaya Gardens. Mark Osterman. Well, the gardens were designed by Diego Suarez. He was a landscape architect who worked on the project along with uh, Paul Chalfin, who was the chief designer of the overall project and closely with Deering. Um, Di Diego Suarez was Colombian born but Italian trained landscape architect. So the, the gardens themselves are deeply influenced by um, Italian estate gardens. Um, ranging from the 1600s through the 1800s. Deering spent years buying artwork and objects to be carefully placed both inside his mansion and throughout his classical gardens. Deering was interesting because he didn't collect uh, pieces for per se their provenance or what might be considered their monetary value. He was interested in how they would be integrated into the overall aesthetic of the estate. So rather than say what would be a highlight of the collection, Pieces were purchased um, solely for the purpose of that integration and this overall aesthetic of having this patina of age and antiquity. So the house is filled with antiquities, but Deering also commissioned contemporary artists of the day to do pieces throughout the home. Alexander Calder was one of them. His sculptures um, adorned the barge, which is the stone boat um, in Biscayne Bay that fronts the what some might consider the back of the house, but what Deering also often considered the front of the home. So the house is this unique combination between what would have been contemporary art of the day and antiquities. But again, the idea was for an overall integration um, of these aesthetics for an overall feel. Deering wanted to integrate Florida nature into his carefully designed estate, as well as selected non-indigenous plants. Mark Osterman. Yes, so an extreme challenge because you can't take uh, an Italian uh, formal garden and simply place it here in a subtropical climate. So there was a lot of uh, experimentation that took place. Deering was interested in um, preservation and conservation of the environment uh, as well as his half-brother. They did experiments um, and propagation of plants. So there was a lot of trial and error here. Uh, there were places that were designed, specifically uh, a rose garden, but the roses could not grow in this climate. There was uh, an aspect of the gardens titled the secret garden, which was made specifically for orchids. But again, it could not accommodate uh, orchids in the high level of humidity and heat. So those are some of the challenges um, that happened. And throughout until today, we still experiment with our horticultural department on best ways to look at historical precedent to have the gardens as they were intended to be when Deering was here, but at times and when necessary, introduce other plants that might thrive well in this type of environment because of advances in research and technology that we have. The elaborate gardens of Vizcaya express the classical ideals of balance, symmetry, and rational design. The meticulously manicured shrubbery, trees, plants, and flowers are augmented by man-made structures intended to add to the beauty of the natural surroundings. The most unique outdoor structure at Vizcaya is a piece of fantasy architecture called the barge sitting in the water in front of the mansion. And that's aptly put. It's also known in terms of uh, garden design as a folly. 
So throughout the gardens are a series of follies. These are sort of unexpected moments. They could be sculptural, they could be a fountain piece, but they typically service as endpoints or transition points within the garden. So the gardens were designed as, uh, essentially as outdoor spaces or rooms. Um, and the barge serviced as one of those, and it's one of the most unique and grand follies of uh, a formal garden. It, it is considered sort of an extension of the exterior spaces and the garden itself. The barge was originally adorned with shrubbery and fountains and had a small summer house on board. Today, the structure is the least well-preserved aspect of the estate. Deering's grand attempt to control nature was challenged by nature itself on multiple occasions. A hurricane in 1926 and two in 1935 severely damaged the estate, leading to extensive repairs of the gardens. In 1992, Hurricane Andrew impacted the property, particularly the barge. In 2005, Hurricanes Katrina and Wilma further damaged the barge and caused water intrusion into the home. Deering did not live to see the destruction to his carefully designed estate. No, he was here less than 10 years. He passed away during um, a cruise on his way back from Paris to New York in 1925, which was unfortunate. Um, but he did enjoy his winters here, starting from, say, 1916 through 1925. In 1951, Deering's nieces, who were his heirs, sold the Vizcaya estate to Dade County and donated the interior furnishings of the house. The property opened as a museum the following year. Deering neither married nor had children. Um, he, his heirs were his nieces, the daughters of his half-brother, Charles Deering. Uh, Charles had a, an estate known as a Deering estate, which still exists today, uh, further south Miami. The heirs kept the estate for a while and then had the intention of turning it into a private museum. But uh, between maintenance and cost, it was sort of untenable and very difficult. Before Vizcaya opened as a museum, much of the sprawling estate was sold off. Mark Osterman. It encompassed close to 100, I think 150 acres. Um, when Deering's heirs eventually conveyed the property to um, Miami-Dade County with the understanding that it would be utilized as either a museum or a park in perpetuity. Prior to that, part of the land was sold to the Archdiocese of Miami and some of it to um, private developers. That land is now developed. Uh, most of that land to the south of the property originally was what was called the Lagoon Gardens. And the idea is that as you went through the formal gardens, uh, the environment would become less formal and you'd sort of enter this sort of fantasy landscape. So it was a series of islands and bridges that people could traverse either through boat or, or walking, but less formalized in terms of how they were kept. With that said, they were still um, landscaped and designed. And the other aspects of the property were across what's known as South Miami Avenue. Those were part of the Vizcaya Village, which was a place where staff lived, farming functions, took place, that village helped make the estates somewhat self-sustainable. So agricultural functions took place over there. So part of that area that was used as a pasture and for general uh, farming and agriculture was sold off. Mark Osterman says there are constant challenges to maintaining Vizcaya Museum and Gardens and making the facility relevant to contemporary visitors. They're immense. So essentially, 
not to be too blunt, the property is in a constant state of decay. So it's now about 100 years old, and most of the antiquities range either from, can be 100 to 500, 1,000 years old, depending upon the object. So the challenges are huge. In terms of curatorial, a lot of the challenges go back to what do we want to do here? How do we want to interpret this space to the public? How do we make this place of value um, to the public? And how do we also make a historic home a place that's dynamic and changing and not static and sort of frozen in time? So we do have a contemporary arts program here that's headed up by our curatorial and collections division. And one of the other large challenges that we have is conservation. So how do we preserve and conserve not just the objects and antiquities, but the house itself? One of the nuances to that is that the home was originally built to look as if it was hundreds of years old. So when you conserve either a column in the home or even any of this statuary or stonework out here, there needs to be this middle ground because it's meant to have this patina of age. So how much is cleaned and how much is not, how much is really put that back together are, are decisions that need to be made by the conservation team and collections managers. Modern visitors to Vizcaya can be amazed by the excessive splendor of America's Gilded Age in Florida and contemplate the illusion of control over our natural environment. One of the bigger ideas that we hope our guests come away with is this idea that Vizcaya is this adaptation of European traditions placed in this unique subtropical and Miami context and sort of understand what that is and how it came about. As we're moving forward, we're also looking at uh, or thinking about this idea, why does Vizcaya matter? We don't have that one grand answer, but we are considering ways to look at that and think about um, using the lens of preservation to sort of approach everything we do. Um, and it's not preservation in the sort of small terms, understanding you preserve an object so it sustains itself. It's preservation that is a conceptual idea that can be applied on a broad base to all different types of communities. And our other main initiative in terms of visitation and interpretation is to outreach to local visitors. We currently have about 70% of our daily visitorship is from people out of town. So we're looking at ways to engage the local community and become a community resource. Mark Osterman is guiding programs manager at Vizcaya Museum and Gardens in Miami. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, where you can find great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly. That and much more at myfloridahistory.org.
that's our state anthem, Florida, where the sawgrass meets the sky. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, today we're discussing one of our state's first politicians. Yeah, that's right. Uh, today we're talking about David Levy Yuley, who was the first one of two uh, first state senators for Florida when it became a state in 1845. Uh, but Yuley was not new to Florida in 1845 when he was elected to the Senate. In fact, he wasn't new to uh, politics at that time either. Uh, Yuley was born in 1810, actually down in the Virgin Islands in St. Thomas. Uh, so he was actually a British citizen. Uh, his father then immigrated to the United States, and they acquired a huge tract of land in northeast Florida, about 50,000 acres, with the hopes of creating uh, what his father termed as a new Jerusalem. The Levy family were actually uh, Jewish. Uh, his father was of uh, Moroccan descent. He was a Sephardic Jew, and they had immigrated to the Caribbean where David was born, and then again made their way to the United States uh, when David was about nine years old. Shortly after coming to Florida, though, uh, he was sent north to Virginia to be formally educated, remained there until he was about 17 years old, then came back to Florida and was living on his father's plantation uh, near present-day Micanopy. Um, it was at that time that he traveled to St. Augustine and began practicing law. He actually worked under Robert Raymond Reed, who later became a territorial governor of Florida, uh, but was a judge in St. Augustine, and learned quite a bit about politics and the political system uh, and how territorial politics in particular worked within the Florida Territory. And it was during this time that he became particularly interested in the state of affairs in Florida, the banking system, uh, again, territorial politics, how things, how things worked. Uh, he was a delegate to the uh, Territorial Constitutional Convention uh, in the 1830s. Uh, he was also a, a clerk for the State Legislative Assembly. Uh, and then in 1845, he was elected to the U.S. Senate. Uh, but before that, he'd actually served in the U.S. House of Representatives as well. So he was a veteran by the time uh, he was representing the state of Florida. Uh, but what's interesting about Yuley, uh, again, outside of politics, would uh, probably be his entrepreneurial uh, endeavors. He was involved in the early railroad systems here in Florida. In fact, he built uh, what was at the time in the 1850s the longest railroad in the state of Florida. It was called the Florida Railroad, uh, and it ran from Fernandina in northeast Florida, Fernandina Beach, um, across the state to Cedar Key, which was along the Gulf Coast of Florida. The idea being that ships could now avoid the treacherous Florida Straits and could ship overland uh, goods from the Atlantic to the to the Gulf region. Uh, and he became involved in a number of other railroad uh, endeavors, but uh, was really dedicated to the uh, burgeoning Florida economy at that time. Well, not too long after Florida became a state, the American Civil War broke out. And of course, uh, Florida was part of the Confederacy during the Civil War. Where did Yulee stand? Well, it's interesting. Again, Yuli was uh, actually a British citizen when he came to Florida, as I stated before. So, um, but he was—he uh, really identified with the self-made American image. You know, he was um, very much a Southerner. Uh, he believed in the Southern cause. Uh, he was not in any way, shape, or form an abolitionist. He was very pro-slavery. Uh, and a lot of that probably came from uh, his father, who was a lumberman down in the Caribbean and later was a, a large plantation holder uh, in Florida. Uh, so when Florida did decide to secede from the Union, 
Yuli left Washington, D.C., came back to Florida uh, and became involved in the Confederate cause. So his railroad, the Florida Railroad that he owned at that time, which was actually completed at the beginning when Florida actually decided to secede from the Union in 1861, uh, the operation of the railroad uh, became entirely dedicated to the Confederate cause. So it was really rolled into the Confederate military and was used to transport supplies uh, across the state of Florida. Um, he also built a large plantation on the Gulf Coast near present-day Homosasso, and uh, that plantation was eventually destroyed. So by the end of the war, most of his business holdings were destroyed. The railroad was almost completely destroyed. It was uprooted by the Union Army. Uh, his plantation was burned to the ground. Uh, so by the end of the war, he uh, was really left with, with very little. Uh, in fact, uh, in 1865, uh, he was imprisoned for about seven months for his affiliation with the uh, with the Confederate government. He was, of course, later released, uh, but uh, but at that time he had very little uh, very little left. Well, after the war, how was Yulee involved in Reconstruction? Well, he never entered politics after the end of the Civil War, so he had left his post in D.C. Uh, again, uh, was involved with the Confederate cause. But after the war, he again threw all of his energies into the uh, development of a railroad system in Florida. Um, so before he before his death in 1886, he was president of the uh, Peninsula Railroad Company, the Tropical Florida Railroad Company, the Fernandina and Jacksonville Railroad Company, which a lot of these were, were spurs off of his original Florida line, which he completely rebuilt. Um, and by the time of, of his later years in the 1870s and 1880s, he was known as the father of the Florida railroad system. Uh, they retired back up to, he and his family retired to Washington, D.C., where he died in 1886, but is still known as uh, one of these early uh, uh, champions of, of transportation and internal uh, infrastructure in Florida. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Florida, land of flowers, land of light. Florida, where our dreams can all take flight. Whether you's vibrant morning or the twilight of years, This is Florida Frontiers. Urban sprawl is enveloping much of Florida today. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at city planning for Jacksonville in the 1920s. Two people moved to Florida within a few years of each other in the 19-teens and wound up working together to make a difference in uh, Jacksonville. This was historian Dr. Alan Bliss telling us about the interconnected professional lives of Grace Wilbur Trout and George W. Simons. Beginning in the 1920s, both Trout and Simons would help to revolutionize the ways in which Jacksonville managed its growth. They would help to usher in the era of professional city planning, which would become a model for metropolitan regions throughout the state. Dr. Bliss gives us a picture of Jacksonville as it entered the 1920s when both Trout and Simons would have been recent residents to the city. The same geography that made Jacksonville important in the Civil War 
uh, really drove its whole development, its population, its, its patterns of work and business, uh, and its economy into the 20th century. By the 1920s, Jacksonville was the biggest city by far in Florida. And in 1920, even Miami was really relatively tiny compared to Jacksonville. It was a genuine cosmopolitan metropolis. Before either moved to the River City, Grace Trout had the more accomplished life of the two. Dr. Bliss tells us about what she was able to accomplish quickly upon her move to Jacksonville. She was from Illinois, from Chicago. She was important before she came to Florida because she was a nationally influential suffragist. After the success of the suffrage amendment, she moved from Illinois to Jacksonville, Florida, and bought a house that had belonged to a cousin of hers. And she became an important part of what turned into a city planning advisory board. And city planning had not existed in Jacksonville before that, and there had actually been a certain amount of resistance to it on the part of influential politicians and business people in Jacksonville. And it was one of Mrs. Trout's gifts that when she saw something important that she thought needed to be done, even if there were influential people who didn't agree with her, it was her gift to convince them that they were wrong and that she was right. Unlike Miss Trout, George Simons made a name for himself in Jacksonville. Dr. Bliss recalls how his early life pushed him towards a career in city planning. She wound up collaborating with another person who's been sort of overlooked by history. I'm talking here about a man named George W. Simons from Illinois. He didn't seem to have known Mrs. Trout. He was trained at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology as an engineer, and his first job out of college was to come to work for the state of Florida as the public health official for the State Department of Health, which was headquartered in Jacksonville at the time. He moved here, took up that job, traveled the state of Florida, became acquainted with uh, issues that had to do with the quality of life. And to him, that's what made city planning important. These two individuals brought different skills to their efforts. Dr. Bliss tells us their overall impact to the planning history of the city. The life of people who lived in Florida in the 19-teens and the 1920s was very different from what you and I experience in contemporary Florida in the 21st century. Uh, there was practically nothing in the way of indoor plumbing except in the grandest homes and the most important buildings in cities. Air conditioning was non-existent. Automobiles were rare. Paved highways were exceptional. George Simons got interested in city planning, and when he and Grace Trout started to collaborate with each other to push Jacksonville toward planning, they made a difference. With Grace Trout's political support and acumen, and George Simon's professional training and engineering background. They persuaded the City Council of Jacksonville to adopt uh, Florida's first significant comprehensive city plan, and they also adopted zoning for the City of Jacksonville. They did all that in 1929, and uh, the plan, of course, has been amended and updated since then. But George Simons, for his part, went on to a career as a city planner. He did plans for over 50 cities throughout the American Southeast, and Mrs. Trout, for her part, lived on uh, in Jacksonville for the rest of her life. She passed away in the 1940s. That was Dr. Alan Bliss, and I'm Robert Casanella with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also catch us on the web at myfloridahistory.org or listen as a podcast. 
Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.